scripture lesson, again, is Moses, a burning bush from Exodus chapter 3. I'll be reading verse 1 through 15 from the Common English Bible. Moses was taking care of the flock for his father-in-law, Jethro, Midian's priest. He led his flock out to the edge of the desert, and he came to God's mountain called Oreb. The Lord's messenger appeared to him in a flame of fire in the middle of a bush. Moses saw that the bush was in flames, but it didn't burn up. Then Moses said to himself, let me check out this amazing sight and find out why the bush isn't burning up. And when the Lord saw that he was coming to look, God called to him out of the bush. Moses, Moses. Moses said, I'm here. Then the Lord said, don't come any closer. Take off your sandals because you are standing on holy ground. He continued, I am the God of your father, Abraham's God, Isaac's God, and Jacob's God. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And then the Lord said, I've clearly seen my people oppressed in Egypt. I've heard their cry of injustice because of their slave masters. I know about their pain. I've come down to rescue them from the Egyptians in order to take them out of that land and bring them to a good and broad land, a land that's full of milk and honey, a place where the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites all live. Now the Israelites' cries of injustice have reached me. I've seen just how much the Egyptians have oppressed them, so get going. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I to go to Pharaoh and to bring the Israelites out of Egypt? God said, I'll be with you. And this will show you that I'm the one who sent you. After you bring the people out of Egypt, you will come back here and worship God on this mountain. But Moses said to God, If I now come to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they're going to ask me, What's this God's name? What am I supposed to say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God continued, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, Abraham's God, Isaac's God, and Jacob's God has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how all generations will remember me. Here ends this reading. May God grant us wisdom and courage for interpretation. Every generation must make some choices about how they choose to live out their faith. The last couple of generations made some choices and we are now living with the consequences of those choices. Saving souls to the neglect of the needs of the poor and marginalized was the trend for most churches in the 1950s and early 60s. To be honest, a few seem to be preoccupied with it still. 
It was as if someone said, you cannot focus on the spiritual and social needs of the world all at the same time, but we've learned we can walk and chew gum. And then with the dawning of the civil rights movement in the mid and late 1960s, there arose a renewed commitment to see the Christian life and mission as a conduit, not just to save the souls of individuals, but a conduit also to transform the whole of society, no longer just caring for souls, but embracing as Christianity had for most of its history prior to the 1950s, the work of justice and social equity. And since the 70s, most evangelical churches have gone back or stayed on the same course of neglecting souls to the neglect of social transformation. And mainline churches, many mainline churches such as ours, have quite frankly struggled to find our own identity. We know we don't feel compelled to mobilize people to have faith on the basis of fear and intimidation to come and, you know, to use those techniques to mobilize them to come and be part of our communities of faith. But quite frankly, working for social change just seems uncomfortable and too political for some of us. Ironically, it felt that way for many would-be followers of Jesus during his time as well. They decided the cost was too great. They risked criticism, or even worse, their very lives if they decided to stand up for the poor and the marginalized, if it meant speaking truth to power. And mobilizing our faith, which is what I'll be talking about for the next several weeks in this series, is about putting new ideas renewed passion, new conviction, and sacrifice into working for social change, but it's not a new idea. It's the original idea that began this vision of Jesus, this vision of God. What is needed today is a dedicated group of disciples of Jesus who are committed to remaking the world in the image of God's vision, a just vision, a loving vision, a peace-filled vision, not just for a few, but for all. And, and to do so, not in spite of our faith, but because of our faith in the way of Jesus. Most white Christians and primarily white congregations were silent during the civil rights movement in this country. We have to be honest about that. These congregations and Christians were too worried about seeming controversial at the time, and this greatly harmed the witness of the church as a whole. But the few that decided to get on board and use their influence along with primarily black congregations and multicultural congregations together formed an influence so powerful for the sake of the way of Jesus that it changed the, the shape of society. And there were, the, you know, these were the ones, these courageous few had the, the gumption, if you will, to tip the scales that eventually gave way to progress for black Americans. Progress we're still working to keep and to fully live into. Now while we remember and celebrate the oratorical genius of Dr. King when we think of the civil rights movement, the truth is there were countless people who learned to tell their story in ways that elicited both sacrifice and commitment from others 
who are unnamed and unmentioned and uncelebrated. These unsung heroes go unmentioned and uncelebrated for the most part, and yet their courage and ability simply to share their story was so important to recruiting and sustaining participation in such important components of the civil rights movement as the, the bus boycotts, the voter registration campaigns, and sit-ins, all of these just during the civil rights movement. These change agents that go uncelebrated and unnamed oftentimes, they weren't gifted orators like Dr. King. Most were regular folks who just spoke up and stood their own normal ground and stood with those who were suffering discrimination. These kinds of heroes, the unsung ones, should be celebrated not because they need it, friends, but because we need to be reminded that it's not just the ones with the greatest ability who often lead towards transformation in a society, but the ones who make themselves available. Availability wins out over ability when ability is not available. Now I wonder what progress could happen today if Christians and churches got less worried about seeming controversial and speaking up for those who have no voice and got more concerned about protecting the inherent dignity and value of 100% of the human beings alive on this planet without regard to which side of a national border they live on, without regard to who they love or where they live or how they worship. I wonder what would happen if we saw our Christian discipleship and our own personal faith journeys and stories linked inseparably to those who have nothing material to offer us, and we spoke up because we were compelled by our faith, even if it caused a stir or ruffled the proverbial feathers. Moses wrestled with finding his own voice, too. We just read of his struggle a moment ago to accept God's calling for him to free the Israelites from the yoke of slavery and lead them into the promised land. And while we know little about Moses' early life, we do have evidence of Moses' intolerance toward injustice. For example, in Exodus chapter 2, Moses is seen striking down and killing an Egyptian who he sees brutally beating a Hebrew slave, leading to his forced exile from Pharaoh's court. Moses' dual Egyptian and Hebrew identities, they enabled him to understand the ways and means of Pharaoh's court while also identifying with the oppressed Hebrew slaves. And Moses is faced with a painful but conscious choice to either turn a blind eye to oppression and justice and hold on to the comfort and privilege that he was afforded or to decide to get in the way of injustice and potentially risk losing everything. Becoming a person with a truly mobilized, activated faith often means making similar risky choices. It means making common cause with the oppressed and using whatever status we have, whatever privilege we have to fight against evil and oppression and injustice. It means being willing to be, heaven forbid, uncomfortable sometimes. It means being willing to link our own world with someone else's world. It means coming out of isolation and choosing to be connected inseparably to someone else when there is no reward in sight but only 
potential cost involved. Years passed in Moses' life, and then something bizarre and extraordinary happens in Moses' story. God turns Moses' world upside down when he sees the angel of the Lord appear in a flame of fire out of a burning bush. And at the burning bush, Moses engages in a heated debate with God, asking, basically, why me? Who is calling me? And why these people? And why now? And this is where so many Christians, and for that matter, even entire congregations, fail to act. Moses, you see, had to choose a side. He had a foot in both the Egyptian world and a foot in the Hebrew world. He had walked on both sides of a line, but this burning bush moment called Moses to make a very risky choice and to indeed choose sides. Many of us are so fearful when it comes to choosing sides. We're so fearful of making enemies, of receiving criticism or scrutiny. But what we fail to realize, friends, is that by not choosing a side when it comes to evil, injustice, or oppression, we've actually chosen a side. And I don't know that we're pleased with the side when we step back and look at it with a broader perspective that we choose by not choosing. As Bishop Desmond Tutu has so famously said, if you are neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. And when we opt to do nothing, when we opt to say nothing, but try to fade into the woodwork, we end up allowing whatever injustice we've seen to just continue and to become more acceptable and more normal. What I love about Moses is how much we can relate to his response. His initial reaction to God is, is one of fear and trepidation, if we're just being honest. Moses asks, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites, elites, out of Egypt? But God replies, I'll be with you. And God's reply represents all the reassurance we should ever need, serving as a reminder that God never leaves us nor forsakes us. And yet Moses still isn't convinced. He then asks, well, if I come to the Israelites and I say to them, you know, the, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? What shall I say to them then? And God replies, I am who I am. God reminds Moses that God's identity and Moses' identity is inextricably linked to his faith. And Moses begins to catch the vision that his own plight, his own humanity, is bound up in the humanity of these Israelites who are being held captive and God's promise to deliver them. And so in the end, Moses chooses Israel's side over Egypt's side because he sees how plainly wrong it is for the Egyptians to hold the Israelites captive regardless of the politics of it all. And this captivity by the Egyptians is working against the promise that God gave to Abraham for this people to be as numerous as the grains of sand. And finding this connection, a place where our own story intersects with the stories of those that we see who are suffering injustice is so key when we seek to answer the call of God in our own way to become a force for positive change. 
Some people today call this, and I'm not sure I can pull it off, but I'll try, getting woke. Now, I took a course in seminary from Dr. Brandon Scott on finding the gospel story in film. Sometimes I drive Cherie crazy with this now, ever since seminary. It was really about noting theological themes that are present in the movies that we watch, ordinary movies, not just faith-based ones. Movie watching has never been the same for me. I guess you could say I got woke to finding important theological themes in the stories of the movies I watch. And almost every movie is packed full of theological themes and references. And since theology at its core deals with the human condition, the relationship people share between each other, sometimes between themselves and God, also all kinds of things, conceptions of the afterlife, evil, sin, on and on and on. Most every movie is loaded like a treasure chest just waiting to be discovered for those with the theological eyes to see these themes. Now, it's been out so long that I run the risk of dating myself. But do any of you remember the first movie in the Matrix trilogy? If not, you'll catch up. There was a computer hacker named Neo, and he's tracked down by a character named Morpheus, the leader of a revolutionary band of freedom fighters on a mission to free humanity from the captivity of machines who had enslaved the world. Do you hear any parallels in the story so far? Kind of sounds like the Israelites in Egypt. And so, in the film, Neo appears almost as a Christ-like figure, referred to by Morpheus as the One. And one of my favorite scenes is the pivotal moment in which Neo is given a life-altering and paradigm-shattering choice of whether to swallow one of two pills. With the blue pill, if he decides to take it, he could wake up with his memory of this whole encounter with Morpheus erased stuck in a dream-induced existence within this matrix which is generated by machines as a pretend world. And with this choice, he would remain blissfully asleep, never having to confront the fact that his current reality is just an illusion. Or he could choose the red pill and, according to Morpheus, remain in Wonderland and see how far the rabbit hole goes. In other words, he could join a small group of humans who've been freed from the machines to see uh, this campaign that's being waged to liberate humanity from this big, giant, world-sized illusion. One path offers comfort and security, even if it is a false one. The other offers incredible risk and danger, but leads to true emancipation and freedom. Well, Neo chooses the red pill, and the rest is cinematic history. We may not face decisions as stark as this one, but even in those more subtle moments in which God offers two choices, a red pill or a blue pill, we must ask ourselves, which pill do we swallow? Do we choose to continue to stick our heads in the sand for the sake of comfort, for the illusion of peace and the absence of scrutiny directed our way, or do we choose to wake up to see things as they truly are, and to involve ourselves in fixing stuff. Over the course of our lives, God pre pre presents us with many matrix-like moments, many Moses-like burning bush moments. And in these critical moments, we are often confronted by injustices. And we, like Moses, like Jesus, 
We have to make some deliberate and conscious choices about what a faithful response on our own part looks like. You know, they say hindsight is 2020 vision. And I bet if we had some time to reflect, looking back over the course of our lives, excavating a few of the experiences we've had along this journey, we would find at least a few life-changing moments, or at least moments that could have been life-changing. And in these choice moments, when we handled it well, maybe it was like scales falling from our eyes or our community, and we began to see the world in a different way. This must have been what Jesus experienced the moment he turned over the tables of the money changers in the temple in Mark, or when he confronts the Pharisees for the hypocrisy by challenging them to cast the first stone towards a woman adulterer, or facing temptation after 40 days fasting in the desert, or when Jesus refuses to deny his identity even when questioned by the Sanhedrin. These are all defining critical moments in Jesus' ministry that reveal his heart and his character and his sense of calling. Sadly, many of us calling ourselves Christians continue to take the blue pill, see things normally as the status quo rather than daring to answer the call and to wake up and to step into the transformational opportunities that God places right in front of us. We continue to prefer to live our lives protected by walls of comfort and convenience that separate us often from the bitter realities of pain and suffering that lie just outside our view. And over time, when we continue to ignore the pain of the world around us, eventually we begin to grow deaf and we don't hear the cries of the world's dispossessed and disinherited. But friends, true discipleship in the way of Jesus is choosing an active role in the transformation of the world. It means enlisting ourselves as willing change agents, as part of God's redemptive and liberating purposes in the world today. And burning bush type moments form the backbone of finding a shared story between our own stories and the stories of those that we're called to help. What Moses was able to do was to remember his roots. He remembered his Hebrew identity. Even after having lived life basically as an Egyptian with all its privileges and benefits in order to avoid capture, he remembered his Hebrew roots. And I think this is how these burning bush moments work, if I'm not mistaken, my friends. God may call us to be stretched. Moses was not an orator. He was not, according to his own admission, exceptionally brave. His abilities were perhaps somewhat in question, but he had a common thread in his story with the people of Israel. He was born a Hebrew. And this shared thread of his humanity was enough. This shared story was enough for him to become what I call creatively maladjusted to the status quo of Israel's captivity, to see his story connected to their story and to answer the call that God was giving in that burning bush moment. Now, I wonder if by chance today just might be a burning bush moment for someone listening to this message. 
What might God be saying to us today if we really listened? I wonder, is there someone here, a person or a group of people that you know who are forgotten or forsaken or trapped or who are experiencing injustice in some way? Do you, my friend, have the moral courage and vision, a moral imagination to see hope in their situation? Do you have the moral courage to stand up when it would be easier just to sit down and be quiet? You might be thinking, well, who am I to even think I could make a difference? Moses wondered the same thing, but he kept listening to God. Even when he argued with God, he kept listening. And eventually, he answered his call to action. I wonder today if, like Moses, we can learn to see that we, too, are called to be God's change agents in our own ways, empowered by the Holy Spirit to be God's very own hands and feet. It may mean ruffling a few feathers. It might mean making a few waves. It might mean challenging the status quo. It might also mean adjusting our discipleship. And it just might mean literally saving someone else's life. Edward Everett Hale has written these beautiful words, and you may have heard them, but I want to share them in case you haven't or in case it's been a while and you've forgotten. In fact, they really serve as a commitment prayer. So here are these words, and if you agree, take ownership of them and make yourself available today as a positive force for spiritual and social change. Edward Everett Hale said, I am only one, but still I am one. I cannot do everything, but still I can do something. And because I cannot do everything, I will not refuse to do the something that I can do. Such is the life of the person who answers the burning bush moment and socially engages their faith. Stay woke, my friends. Stay woke. Amen.